Well, we want to come down to the final um, material that we want to share with you during this time, and it's called Living the Exchange Life. There are not a lot of diagrams for this material in your notebook, and that's intentional because we, there are so many different directions we could go with this and so many different things that we could share. But I want to kind of bring it down to a, to a practical level and to deal with some of the, 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 the root issues and sort of the gut kinds of things that, that you're going to deal with when you start applying these principles to your life. And I want to begin by talking about emotions and the effect of our emotions on, on the, the experiencing of Christ as life. And some of this material is uh, from a fellow named Bill Gillum, who has given permission to use anything he has, as we've given him permission to use anything we have. Uh, and some is from Chuck, from other places. But as, as we talk about this matter of emotions, emotions are, are not good indicators of what is true. But our emotions are all heavily impacted by events and occurrences throughout our lives. Experiences we have in childhood will, will damage our emotions. Uh, Siemens has a book out called Healing for Damaged Emotions. And I think many times we feel like that, that until we can deal with those emotions and understand those emotions, that we're not going to be able to experience victory. And that's not necessarily true. But they can hinder our experiences of Christ as life unless we understand what's going on with our emotions. Now, let's, uh, let's plug in the overhead uh, and let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how this, this mind and emotions kind of thing works and how it works in response to the circumstances of life. Let's put this on a 1 to 10 scale and 1 being kind of a, at rest mentally or emotionally, and ten being just totally wired emotionally or, or your mind is, is totally activated. And let's say that you are you're going through, walking through a field here in Oklahoma. And as you walk through this field, you look down and there is a huge rattlesnake right under your foot as you are about to put your foot down. Now, your mind is at rest, it's at a one, your emotions are at a one, but what happens to your mind when you see that rattlesnake? Well, it recalls everything you have ever heard Marlon Perkins say about a rattlesnake, and none of it is good. I mean, diamond-shaped head, fangs, venom, pain, swelling, death, I mean, all of this stuff is negative. And so your mind instantly goes from a 1 to a 10, and it is racing with information about rattlesnakes. Your emotions follow suit, and panic sets in. I mean, it's scream, holler, all this kind of stuff, and you are just, you are in a state of panic. Well, you look again, and you see that it is a rubber snake. Now, what happens mentally? You are able to recover instantly, mentally, right? No sweat. It's a rubber snake. No one ever died of a rubber snake bite. You know. And so mentally, everything's fine. But what happens to your emotions? Do they recover instantly? 
No, they're kind of like a, a BB sinking in oil. I mean, it's just kind of going down real, real slow. And let's say you get back to the house and those emotions have gone back down to about a six. And you walk in the kitchen, open a drawer, and this big hairy spider runs up your arm. Your mind, right back to a ten. Because you think you saw an hourglass on its belly. You know, black widow, whole nine yards. The emotions, right back up to the top. But the spider jumps off your arm and takes off out the door. The mind goes right back down to a one. It recovers instantly. Spider's gone. No worries. What do the emotions do? They start sinking slowly. Maybe back down to a six. Well, what happens if you live in a house full of spiders and rattlesnakes? You know, your emotions may never be below a six. When it comes to spiders and rattlesnakes, your emotions may be jammed at a six. Okay, then what happens? Something comes along that's going to kick your mind up to about a five. That's about a five-pointer. And your emotions are going to try to respond, but there's only four points left on the scale, so you totally short-circuit emotionally over something that really wouldn't be a biggie to someone else. See, those emotions become jammed, and that can apply to, to relationships. It can, re it can apply to sexual response in a marriage relationship. It can apply to, to fear of rejection. It can apply to self-esteem, to where our emotions, because of past experiences, become jammed at a high level. And our emotions are lying to us about what is really true because of the damage that's been done emotionally in the past. Now, what happens to those emotions? This is uh, the bear story. And the bear story is simply... You know, here's, here's a guy who is body, soul, and spirit, mind, will, and emotions. And he is out picking berries in the woods one day and enjoying the beautiful day and the sunshine and the fresh air and everything. And he's picking away at a bush, and all of a sudden, a grizzly bear rears up behind the bush. And there's foam around his lips and saliva dripping from his fangs and the big claws out like this. And this guy's about 15 feet tall. Now, what happens as you know, your eyeball focuses on this and begins to process information through the brain to your mind and to your emotions? Well, your mind, again, begins to recall everything you know about grizzly bears attacking people in the wilderness, body parts found scattered around the woods, you know, exciting kinds of things. Your emotions go back to a panic state, right? And so your mind is turning, and your mind, you turn around, and off across a field, you see a cabin. And your mind says to you, if you can reach the cabin before the bear reaches the cabin, maybe you'll be safe. And your emotions are saying, go for it. You know, just run. And so you're putting one foot down as fast as you can in front of the other one. And the, the emotions are the adrenaline's pumping and the emotions are totally wired. The bear is right on your tail. And you know if you don't reach the cabin first, you're going to be his lunch. But you reach the cabin before the bear gets there and you slam the door and you throw the bar down in the cradle across the door. And just as the bar hits the cradle, the bear comes crashing into this big old thick plank door. And he bounces off like a ping pong ball. I mean, this thing is solid. And the bear begins to try and shake the cabin, but big old 18-inch logs in this cabin. 
And so he goes around to the window, and it's just about a foot square, and he sticks his paw through the window and waves it. Nothing happens. Well, what happens to your mind? Your mind instantly says, you're safe. Man, you made it. Everything's okay. But you are probably not going to sit down and sip a glass of lemonade and doze off to sleep immediately because your emotions are not agreeing with what is really true because they have been damaged by the circumstance that you're facing right then. And depending on how often you've been chased by grizzly bears, it might be hours before you recover emotionally. It might be months before you recover emotionally, before your emotions begin to agree with what's really true, that you are safe. Now, how do we handle that? Down in the corner here, we see a progression When you reach the cabin, you know that you are safe. So the first thing is knowledge. After you know you're safe, then you believe that you're safe. I mean, you accept the fact that, hey, this is reality. I am now safe. The third step is to act like you're safe. I think it's uh, uh, Jack Taylor that says... Uh, you need to act like something so when it's not so, so it can become so. And our emotions are lying to us. So we need to know we're safe, believe we're safe, act like we're safe, and eventually the emotions will come into line and they will agree with the fact that we are safe. But there are times when as you abide in Christ as life, you will not feel like Christ is your life. You will feel inferior. There are, there are those old tapes that are still recorded up here and those old feelings. And Satan is going to turn on that cassette recorder every chance he gets and play those back to you. And those old tapes are not recorded in Vincent Price's voice. You know, this spooky kind of, ah, this is, you know. They are recorded in your voice with an Oklahoma accent or a Texas accent or a Pennsylvania accent. I mean, in the first person singular. And those old tapes will play back to you that I am inferior. I am inadequate. I am a failure. I feel rejected. I feel insecure. And you will be telling yourself these things based on the old information that's stored up here. And our emotions may not agree with what God says is true. And so there are times that you are absolutely going to have to deny your feeler. We were dealing with a, a lady in uh, Dallas, Texas, and this is, this is right after I came to understand the exchange life, and, and uh, this lady's husband had left, was living with a 22-year-old secretary, and he was about 42, and, and uh, he, I mean, traded his Chevette in for a Corvette, you know, and was playing this whole midlife crisis game, and uh, <clears throat> people were telling her to divorce him, but she came to understand her identification with Christ and begin to walk in that victory and just claim Christ as a resource for facing that trial. And we moved away from the Dallas area, moved to Carson City, Nevada. And uh, she would call my wife from time to time. And she would just be going through some terrible agony, emotional trauma. And my wife would say, get your eyes back on what God says you are. You're looking at your emotions. And Linda, said, Linda would say, I know what you're going to say, and it's not what I want to hear, but I call you anyway because I know it's what I need to hear. And God worked in her life 
her husband came back. Got he wasn't a Christian. He, he got he received Christ as a result of her faithfulness, and uh, and later uh, she called one time, told my wife. She said, "I'm upset with you." My wife said, "Well, why? I haven't talked to you for six months." And she said, "Well, it's all your fault." She said, "I have six different women who are calling me now. They're going through crises in their lives, and I'm sharing with them. And the phone rings, and Eddie says, Linda, it's one of your counselees. You know, come talk to him.'" And she said, "I'm just telling them exactly what you shared with me." So there are times when, if you talk with Scott or with Max or with any of these people who are 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 helping you, your emotions are going to be screaming one thing when God says something else. Because they have been damaged, they have been jammed at this level of, uh, of frustration. And we need to trust God to bring the emotions in line in His timing. You know, the important question is not how do you feel. The important question is what are you choosing to believe right now. And so your emotions may cause you some problems because you may not feel like this is really true. You may not feel like Christ is your life, but if God says He's your life, then what is He? He's your life. So that's, that's the way emotions work in this, this dealing with uh, the application of Christ as life. Now, I want to share uh, some material that... Um, let's see. Oh, there it is. We used to do a session called Setting the Mind. And, and I want to share most of, of the material we shared in that by way of, of living the exchange life. Have you ever gone to a conference where, where you were taught how to walk in the Spirit? Have you ever been taught how to walk in the Spirit, how to be Spirit-controlled as a believer? Okay. You've probably heard everything from soup to nuts. Uh, stay in the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And by the way, an interesting study is to compare Ephesians 5.18, where it says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Compare the results of that in the next three verses or so to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because the results of being filled with the Spirit and the word of Christ dwelling in you richly are exactly the same in the verses following Colossians 3.16 and the verses following Ephesians 5.18. And so... I think we need to stay in the Word. We need to do what Bill Gothard says, engraft the Word of God. Respond to life through the Word. One fellow said, you ought to be so filled with the Word of God that when you cut yourself, you bleed Bible. You know, when you, when you look at the world and you look at circumstances, you look at them through chapter and verse eyes. And so there's validity to that. I, I think being instant in prayer, praying without ceasing. Prayer is certainly one of the weaknesses and the shortcomings and, and, and really some of the hardest work in the Christian discipline and the Christian life. And it's something that doesn't show. But uh, those of you who were in the, uh, the crusade with Dell and Life Action, I don't know whether he still says this, but I can remember hearing Dell Faisenfeld say, little prayer, little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. And so there, uh, prayer is, is a great need in Christian lives. Others will say witnessing, others will talk about giving liberally, others will talk about being faithful as being part of walking in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. But I want to talk about something that often, uh, very often, or almost never, is related to being filled with the Spirit or walking in or abiding in this life, the life that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as we do, I, I want to kind of lay a little foundation for this. 
You know what an amphibian is? Frogs, an amphibian, can live in, in water or on land. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, we used to go up to Wisconsin, to the Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin River, and they had the old World War II Army ducks, those amphibious vehicles that would drive on land, go down in the river, and they'd ride the bluffs along the Wisconsin River and go down in the river for a while and go back up on the bluffs and back down in the river. And I thought that was neat as about a 10-year-old kid. Just to, to, they were amphibians. They were at home in two different environments. Well, you, you in a sense, are kind of like an amphibian because you are equipped to function in two different environments simultaneously. Obviously, one environment is planet Earth. God has given you an Earth suit. You have a skeleton to give you structure. You have mus muscles to give you mobility. You have a brain as a data control center. You can touch and taste and feel and see and smell all of your environment. And you can respond to your environment with your intellect. And you can respond to your environment with your emotions. You can reason. You know, Yankee ingenuity. We can make things work here on planet Earth. So God has given us some tremendous resources for functioning here on planet Earth. But at the same time you are alive here on planet Earth, you are also alive in a spiritual realm. You exist in a spiritual realm where you are seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places. Now, if you try to get in touch with what's going on in the spiritual realm, with your earthly equipment, your intellect, your emotions, you are in big trouble. Because that earthly equipment is made for you to cope here on earth. That's the equipment you've been given to function here on this planet. But as in the spiritual realm, what has God given us that we might function there? Well, he has given us his spirit to indwell us, to illuminate his word to us. He has given us his word, which is settled in heaven. He has placed within us the very life of his son, Jesus Christ, and manifest that life through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He has given us faith to reach out and to grasp the, the truths and the promises and the principles that He gives us for life in His Word. And so, so faith and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the life of Jesus Christ within us are, the, are the, the tools that He has given us so that we might function in this spiritual realm. Now, I, I'm, I don't want this to be just a set of techniques for doing something. And part of the frustration people have when they go through an Exchange Life Conference or even go through Exchange Life Counseling, Christ-Centered Counseling, is they don't come out with this list of how-tos. And really, we're geared to that, aren't we? I mean, we want to have... We're results-oriented. Give me something I can do. Give me a list, and I'll go out and do it and make this thing happen. Well, your Christian life is not a, another set of techniques... But this life is a relationship with a living Savior. One of the books on the table down there is a book entitled Living with Jesus Today by Juan Carlos Ortiz. And the whole premise of that book is that most Christians view Jesus Christ and relate to Him as though they were reading an obituary when you look at the New Testament. But He is alive today and He dwells within you and He is doing His work in and through you as a believer. Now, if that is true, how has He provided for us 
to stay in touch with those resources and to stay in touch with that life that he has made ours in Jesus Christ. How do we live by what is spiritual? How do we function in that spiritual realm? I want to read about three different passages of Scripture, and then I want to do a little exercise to teach you some things. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. In other words, set your mind on those things. Focus on those things. Grab hold of those things by an act of your will with your mind. Go to Colossians chapter 3. This is the passage that I said we call the exchange life in a nutshell. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you have been raised up with Christ, now that is the if of reality. It's not a question as to whether or not you have been. It really ought to read sense, and in some versions of Scripture it does. If, then, you have been raised up with Christ, here's the responsibility, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And then it tells you why. Because when... Uh, for you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where you are, so get your mind up there. That is, that is getting in touch with the spiritual realm. Setting your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, go back to Romans again. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in each passage that we've read, it encourages us to set our minds on those things that are pure and honorable and right and good. To set our minds on things above rather than on things on the earth. To set our minds on things of the Spirit rather than on fleshly things. Now, how do you set your mind? It's not just something you do, but it is a, a, a lifestyle that you develop. And we want to talk about setting the mind, and we want to talk about some of the things that... Uh, that are implied when we talk about this matter of setting our minds. Now, obviously, if you live here on planet Earth, you have plenty of things going on in life down here on Earth to occupy your time, don't you? You're thinking. Now, where they came up with these pictures, I have no idea, and I can only guess what they really mean. But many of you probably are dealing with more things than are pictured down here. I look at this bicycle thing, and... And I think of my daughter, the day we moved into our house in Carson City, Nevada, she rode her bicycle down the hill beside the house, fell over, and we wound up putting about a dozen stitches in her knee at the emergency room. I think I paid for one of the emergency rooms at Carson Tahoe Hospital with my accident-prone children. And so 
obviously, if that happens, you have to deal with that, don't you? Uh, maybe you're rear-ended on the freeway on the, on the way to work, and there you are in the middle lane of six lanes of traffic at a rush hour. You know, that's, some, that's a crisis-type thing that you have to deal with. Perhaps there's a member of the family who's terminally ill or at least uh, suffering from a very serious illness. Maybe there's depression. Maybe there's a child that's, that's considering suicide and you're dealing with the trauma of, of the things your children are dealing with. Or maybe your boss is a little irate. You know, and maybe you're taking a tongue lashing and your self-esteem is severely damaged by the things that are going on at work. Or maybe there's financial crisis, and maybe you're an individual who is facing bankruptcy or financial uncertainty. Maybe there are problems in the church. Uh, maybe the church is facing a split, and there's dissension, and, and brothers and sisters in Christ are, are taking sides and are attacking one another. And uh, it's, it's destroying the testimony of Christ in the community, and you're having to deal with that. I'm not sure what this one represents. Maybe Grandma and Grandpa are smoking pot. And, uh, uh, and they are being a bad influence on your teenagers, and you don't know how to deal with that. And uh, Grandma's getting high. And you have this wide variety of, of crises and traumas that you're trying to deal with as you function here on planet Earth. But you know something? At the same time, you are dealing with and coping with these things. You are seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. And Paul said your responsibility is to set your mind on things above. Now, if we do not choose by an act of our will to set our minds on things above, we will by default be setting our minds only on the things here on earth. Now, you can't, you've heard of people that are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Well, you can't really do that. I mean, when your children are bleeding, you can't say, excuse me while I set my mind on things above, you know, and I'm just going to trust God to, to stop the bleeding, you know. Uh, but while we deal with those things, we can, be, we can choose to set our mind on our victory and our position and our identity in Christ. Now, I, I want to share with you what I think it means to set the mind. And as I do that, I want to preface this little exercise that I'm going to do uh, with some comments so that you do not misunderstand. Um, how many of you have read the book Seduction of Christianity? Have you read that? And there's a chapter in there on visualization, and I think visualization can be, can be grossly misused and can be grossly misunderstood. And uh, I, I, am not, I am not prescribing excuse me, a, a technique for, uh, for mystically visualizing something. But I want to do an exercise to teach you something and to teach you some things about setting the mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so I'm going to ask you to do something that is really pretty dangerous after supper when you're tired already. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I am going to ask you... I'm going to ask you not to snore. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to set your mind on some things or to focus on some particular things. Now, I think the abuse in visualization comes in visualizing things to be different than they really happened. Going back and trying to heal memories by visualizing Christ there and keeping the things from happen, happening, visualizing them different than what reality is. 
and, and I'm, this is not a technique that I want you to go home and do. This is a, a learning experience. I want to teach you some, some things about setting the mind through this. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to set your mind on a variety of different things. And then we're going to talk about what we learn from doing this, all right? So let's, uh, let's try it. Try not to sleep. Let's begin by, by setting our minds on an airplane flying through the air. I want you to set your mind on an airplane flying through the air. Probably a variety of different uh, airplanes being pictured right now. But focus on that. All right. Now, I would like to ask you to move your mindset. Move that focus for a moment. And move that mindset to a herd of, of cattle grazing in a field. A herd of cattle grazing in a field. All right. Now, let's move that mindset again. And let's set our minds, uh, set your mind on your mother's face. The sweetest expression you can remember. Just the, the, uh, that loving look in your mother's eyes. Set your mind on your mother's face for a moment. All right. Now, I'd like you to set your mind on your feelings concerning those scenes that we just, we just set our minds on. The airplane, the, the cattle in the field, your mother's face. Set your mind on your, the feelings about that, your emotions. All right, now I'd like to ask you to move your mindset again. And now I'd like to ask you to set your mind on the worst circumstance that you have in your situation right now, the worst problem that you're facing. Set your mind on that for a moment. All right, now set your mind on how you feel about that problem or that situation. Desperation, perhaps? Frustration? What are your feelings about that? All right, now, I'd like to ask you, as we picture that diagram that was on the screen, to set your mind on your position in Christ at the right hand of God. That's where you truly are. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And I want you to see yourself in Him, accepted, complete. So He looks into your eyes and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, my beloved child. Now let's move your mindset again. And let's set your mind on the biggest temptation that you face in your life the biggest sin problem that you're dealing with. You are trying hard to overcome that problem. You're using all of your effort to try and conquer that. Set your mind on that sin, that temptation that you're facing. All right now, I want you to set your mind 
in the heavenly places again at the right hand of God. Facing the same temptation. Looking down on it. You are seated in victory over it. You're, you're sort of the king of hills, king of the hills, so to speak. It's struggling to topple you. But you are more than a conqueror. You are reigning there. You don't try to overcome it. But rather you choose not to obey it. Because you are victorious over it there. Set your mind on that position in the heavenlies. Now just a couple of more. But I'd like you to set your mind back on the circumstance that is most difficult in your life at this particular time. Don't set your mind on your feelings yet, but just set it on that circumstance. But now, I want you to set your mind on Christ dwelling within you, living His life in and through you. Set your mind on, on Jesus and how you have given Him total control of your body, and your emotions and your mind and your will. He is facing that circumstance through you. He is your resource. All right, now, set your mind on your emotions concerning that. What are your feelings saying when you, when you see yourself in Christ and you see Him facing that circumstance through you? All right, now, open your eyes for a minute. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go home and start setting your mind on all these things around about you. Uh, some people say, well, isn't that like self-hypnosis? Well, no. When, when you're hypnotized, you're under someone else's control. As you are setting the mind, it is a choice that you are making as you are dwelling in the physical realm and the spiritual realm at the same time. Now, here are some things that I think we learn. Uh, Number one, I, I think we find that we can set our minds on one thing at a time. And we can move our mindset from one thing to another, can't we? I mean, you can make a decision, a choice of your will to set your mind on Christ in the heavenlies or to set your mind on an airplane flying through the sky or to set your mind on something else. Some people may be mentally hyperactive and your mind is kind of bouncing around like a ping pong ball, but not very often. You can, set your, you can make the choice to set your mind on a particular thing. And you can move your mindset from one thing to another. I think we also learn that if we do not choose to set our minds on spiritual things, things above, they will by default be set on things on the earth. Because there are so many things crying out for our attention down here. So by default, we will have them set on things on earth, not on things in heaven. The third thing I think we can learn from an exercise like this is that the emotions tend to follow wherever the mind is set. The emotions tend to follow the mindset. If you are, if you are setting your mind on the greatest problem in your life, and you are setting your mind on your resources to deal with that, and you are setting your mind on your feelings about that, I mean, there's a lot of frustration. The feelings are following where your mind is set. But when you set your mind on Christ in you, facing the circumstance that you're dealing with, 
the emotions generally are more positive because of where the mind is set. So I think we can learn some things along those lines concerning setting our minds. Now, as we look at that, let's look at this diagram. And let's talk about setting our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And let's see how this all sort of works together and how a cycle is set up. Let's say that you are facing a very difficult circumstance in life. Something that's very painful to deal with. And very often it's through our eyes that we focus on that circumstance or on it, through our minds. And we begin to, to set our minds on the circumstance itself. What's going to happen then? We may say to ourselves, wow, I'm not sure I can handle that. That's an awful lot of stress for a mere mortal to try and deal with. After all, I'm just a human being, and that's just too much to ask. I mean, that's an impossible situation. So then we set our minds, not on the circumstance, but we set our mind on our, on our feelings, our emotions concerning that. And that's really defeating. Because we may be extremely depressed. We may just be overwhelmed emotionally. And you may be so depressed that you don't even want to get out of bed in the morning. And you feel terrible, don't feel good at all. Matter of fact, you may even want to do away with yourself, or you may want to run from the circumstance. And so the emotions are screaming out. And you set your mind on the circumstance, it's defeating and frustrating. You set your mind on the emotions, and that's depressing. Well, then you may set your mind on your mind, and you may sit down and you may decide, I'm going to put my mind to this, and I'm going to come up with a solution. And you think and think and think and study and work and, and analyze and finagle and manipulate, and you cannot come up with a solution. You've set your mind on your mind, your resources. Nothing there. So then you set your mind on the other people. You set your mind on Scott. So I can't figure it out. I feel terrible about this. I can't handle the circumstance. And you go to Scott, I love to get these people who come into my office and they say, you know, you are the 15th counselor I've seen with this problem. And if you don't help me, I'm just going to give up and commit suicide. <laughs> That's a heavy burden to carry. But you go set your mind on somebody else. And there is no one who has the answer. I mean, you can't find anyone who can help you with this thing you're struggling with in your life. And so you set your mind on the circumstance again. And you set your mind on your feelings again. And you set your mind on your ability again. And you set your mind on other people again. And you create this fear-anxiety cycle that begins to overwhelm you. But you can break that cycle. There's, a, there's an Australian psychiatrist named Claire Weeks who has put out a book called Hope and Help for Your Nerves. And she talks about breaking this fear-anxiety cycle through a technique called floating and it's what Scripture calls setting the mind. Leela Faber read that, and he said, well, listen to this. Isn't she saying what we've been saying? That in Scripture, in choosing to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And in the middle of that cycle, as you're dealing with these things, you can choose to set your mind on things above. Your victory in Christ. When Paul is in prison at midnight, do you think... Paul was physically there, but spiritually he had left. I mean... He was in the heavenlies. He had set his mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And he was rejoicing and praising God and walking in his victory while he's chained to the dungeon wall in prison. Setting your mind on things above, 
not on things on the earth. You know, we have a choice as to where we're going to set our mind. I can set my mind on Christ in me. I can set my mind on me in Christ. You say, well, how can he be, you know, how can I be in him and he be in me down here at the same time? And if I am in him in my spirit and he is in me in my spirit, how does that happen? Well, the spirit is not bounded by time or space, neither is Christ. And we can be in him in the heavenlies. He can be in us here on planet Earth. And, and both can be true because time nor space limit us in a spiritual sense of the word. But either way, whether I focus on Christ in me or me in Christ, I'm walking in victory. But if I set my mind on the flesh, that means I am setting my mind on my own resources and my own emotions and what other people can do. And that leads to some tremendous, tremendous frustration. Now, some people say, well, don't you get tired of having to set your mind all the time? I think you could. And there's a verse that someone shared with me in a conference one time. They said, you know, if you get tired of setting your mind, you can do what it says in Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And I think that, there, I think that leads us to another thing that I want to talk about. You know, uh, setting the mind is not the, the emergency chute on your parachute. Setting the mind is not the emergency brake on your car. It's, it's not the turbocharger that makes your four-cylinder engine perform when it has to perform. You know, there are times that we sort of cruise through life, and, and it's kind of like these things I can handle, these things I can't. I need to abide in Christ here, and the rest of the time I can do things pretty well. And so you know, you're, you're kind of cruising along through life, and all of a sudden you turn around and some circumstance is about two inches from your nose, and you try to set your mind and that thing flattens you before you can get your mind in gear. You know, well, what's the solution to that? The solution to that is, is make abiding in Christ the habit of life. Paul said, I die daily. Now, obviously, Paul was not physically dying every day. You say, well, he was in danger of death every day. I think some days he was, some days he probably wasn't. But what Paul is talking about is the daily appropriating of Christ as your life. He became your life at salvation through your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension with him. That is a settled fact. That is your position. Your condition is what you are experiencing of that. And your position ought to be a position of daily abiding in him as life. Now, you say, well, you say, Larry, do you perfectly abide in Christ's life? No. There are times that a circumstance comes up and I respond from my old programming, all that residual of, of the old man that was the only thing I had going for me for a long time and all those old coping mechanisms. But I, I am learning to abide in that life. And that is a life that is lived moment by moment, day by day. You get up in the morning, say, good morning, Lord. You know, I thank you that I, I've been taken out of Adam and placed into Christ and that I died, buried, was raised with him and that through that death with him, his life has become my life. And Lord, I don't feel any different than I did yesterday, but I'm just trusting you to live your life in and through me because you have said that your life is my life. And so as I live, as I go about my daily activities, as I obey, as I serve, it's going to be in dependence upon you to live through me 
and do your work in the world through me in any manner that you want to do it. You just use me as I live. Now, Lord, you know, your mother, I think you and I better go down and feed the kids, get them off to school. And, uh, Lord, it's time that we go upstairs and make the beds. Uh, why don't you get on that side and I'll get on this side. And, and it doesn't work that way, but uh, just living life in dependence upon him. And, and doing that in the, in the quiet areas of life before the storm hits. So when the storm hits, it's the habit of life to abide in him. Bill Gillum uses the illustration of a, a fellow in a, in, a, in a little town who uh, comes into some great wealth. And he has, all, all he's ever had is this 1950 Chevy pickup truck with with no power and steers like a lumber wagon and just beats you to death. And, and he's been looking in these hot rod magazines and he decides that now that he's wealthy, he wants a Lamborghini Countach. You know what those are? Some of you probably have a picture of them on the wall. These high-priced sports cars, you know, I don't know how many cylinders they've got or how many gears they've got, but they are fast and they're something else. Well, this guy's never driven one, has never even seen one except in a magazine. But he orders one, you know, in Los Angeles from a dealer out there. And he is going to fly out there, and this dealer is going to deliver the car to him. He has never driven anything but this old beat-up pickup. And he doesn't know anything about these cars. Do you think he would rather have this car delivered to him in Los Angeles on a freeway entrance ramp at rush hour? Or would he rather have the car delivered to him on an abandoned parking lot somewhere? Well, you know, you want that thing on an abandoned parking lot so you can get used to the turbocharger and you can get used to the positive steering and you can get used to the power and get used to the brakes before you start playing bumper tag with an 18-wheeler. Now, abiding in Christ's life becomes the habit of life. And the, the occurrence, there is a revelation of the truth of Christ's life was one of the most freeing things I ever experienced in my Christian life. But then there is the daily reality of abiding in that life and allowing God to use whatever circumstance you are facing at that time to manifest that life and perfect that life within you. And we need to begin to do that on the abandoned parking lots of life. Not exam week when your boyfriend breaks up with you. You know, and all of a sudden you try to set your mind and the 18-wheeler nails you before you can get your mind set. But when it becomes the habit of life when the crisis comes, we're already abiding. And that's what God would want of us. And that's, that's, uh, that's setting your mind on things above, not just on things on the earth. And that also affects some things like uh, our view of success or failure. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you are failures? Anybody here a failure? We've got a couple of failures here. I want to I ask you some absurd questions, okay? as we kind of look at this thing of failure and then success and failure in our lives as Christians. What makes a cow a cow? Is a cow a cow because it moos? Or is it a cow because it's born a cow? What's the answer to that? It's born a cow. Well, what if there is a cow who doesn't know he's a cow? And he doesn't want to be a cow. And he thinks if he can keep from mooing, he won't become a cow. 
what's he going to spend his time trying to do? Not moo. Okay, he gets around a bunch of other cows and they're mooing away. And he, he forgets for a moment and a moo slips out. And he thinks, oh no, I, I, I'm, gonna be, I'm a cow. And people are going to know I'm a cow because I mooed. Now, how do you keep a cow from being a cow? Can you keep a cow from being a cow by keeping him from mooing? Putting a muzzle on his moor? No. How can you keep a cow from being a cow? There's only one way. You've got to kill him to keep him from being a cow. All right? Now, you say, what does that have to do with anything? Let me ask another question. Why is a sinner a sinner? Is a sinner a sinner because he sins or because he is born a sinner? He is born a sinner. Now, what if a person doesn't know that he's born a sinner and he doesn't want to be a sinner? And he thinks that if he can keep from sinning, he won't be a sinner. Now, what is he going to put all of his effort into doing? Not sinning. Well, he messes up and he sins. And, oh, no, I'm, I'm a sinner. And people are going to see me as a sinner. And it, but if I could keep from sinning, I wouldn't be a sinner. But the truth is, he was a sinner because he was born one. There's only one way you could keep him from being a sinner. You've got to kill him to keep him from being a sinner because that's what he is by birth. All right, now, why is the self-life a failure? Are you a failure in and of yourself because you fail or because the self-life was born a failure? The self-life was born a failure. But what if a selfer doesn't know that that self-life is a failure? And he doesn't want to be a failure. And he thinks that if he can keep from failing, then he won't be a failure. Well, what is that selfer going to do? He's going to work hard to never fail. I, ha I can't disappoint God. I can't fail. Because as long as I don't fail, I'm not a failure. Well, the truth is, in and of yourself, you're a failure because you were born a failure. In me and my flesh dwells no good thing. All of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's what I am born to be. Maybe I can grit my teeth and, and just and try real hard and strain and not demonstrate my failure. You see, I worked a long, I went seven years in the ministry and there was not a failure on my record, statistically or, or, or externally. But inside I felt like a failure, but I didn't want, I was afraid that if I failed, then I'd be a failure. And so I was working real hard not to fail. And then when I finally failed, it was like, what's the use? You know, I gave it my best shot and I can't keep from failing. And then I found out that that's what I was all along. I was just able to control it up to that point in my life. So we are, in and of ourselves, failures. Whether we demonstrate that by our actions or not, that's what the self-life was born to be. Now, let's talk about success and failure in the Christian life. And, and uh, let's, let's say that there's a young gal who gets married, and her husband's name is George, and... Uh, she really wants to make George happy, wants to be a good wife. And she knows that George is a breakfast eater and that he likes his eggs sunny side up with the yolks not broken. And so she thinks to herself, you know, I've been cooking eggs for a lot of years and I really want to please George and I think I can handle this thing. I'm going to go down, I'm going to cook George some eggs and I'm going to really try to not break the yolks. But I can do it. I can handle this. And so she goes down and she cooks breakfast. 
and the eggs don't break. The yolk or the eggs break, but the yolks don't break. And uh, they're exactly like George wants them. But she's not living in dependence on Christ. That's something she can handle. Now, in man's eyes, is that success or failure? Success. In God's eyes, would that be success or failure? In God's eyes, that's failure. It's not done in dependence upon Him. Day two. That night, she reads Handbook to Happiness. And she learns that she is to live in dependence upon Christ as life because He is her life through a death, burial, resurrection, and ascension with Him. And so she reads the book and she said, Lord, I thank you that you're my life. And as I live this day, as I go through, as I go about the activities of this day, I am, I am living in dependence upon you. You live in and through me. Manifest yourself through me in any way that you choose. And she goes down and cooks George's breakfast and the eggs come out perfect. In man's eyes, is that success or failure? Success. In God's eyes, is that success or failure? That's success. Day three. Lord, I'm living in dependence upon you. I thank you that your life is my life. Do with me what you choose today. I'm going down to fix breakfast. And Lord, I, I want breakfast to be just what George wants it to be. And she goes to cook breakfast and she breaks the yolk. In man's eyes, is that success or failure? Failure. In God's eyes, is that success or failure? Success. See, we're redefining success and failure. Failure is not, is not necessarily not meeting an expectation. But as, are you as willing for Christ to manifest himself through you, through your failure, as you are your success? Would Paul have been viewed a success or a failure most of his life by, by earthly standards? A failure most of his life. But in God's eyes, that is victorious Christian living. That is success, living moment by moment, day by day, in dependence upon his life being your life. And so we, we need to redefine success and failure. Sometimes people come in and uh, one of our counselors uh, was asking a lady that she was counseling. Nancy Brunsell is an excellent counselor. Nancy is uh, 50, 51 years of age and an extremely attractive lady. I mean, just a, a classy lady. Excellent counselor. And she was dealing with a woman who, for her self-esteem, was basing her self-esteem on her appearance. And she'd been overweight and she'd lost weight. And she was always, you know, almost to the point of being, uh, having an eating disorder, anorexic, bulimic type thing. And she was obsessed with having to keep her weight down and how she looked. And she said, are you willing to give up your appearance in order to know Christ? Are you willing to just be fat as a pig? If that's what God wants of your life, and that's the way He's going to manifest His life within you. And Nancy, it dawned on Nancy. She said, I was sitting there asking this woman that, and it dawned on me. I don't know whether I'm willing to be fat as a pig, you know, if that's what God wants of my life. But success or failure is, live, is whether or not we are living in dependence upon Him and allowing Him to use every circumstance of life to manifest Himself within us. You see, I believe every circumstance of life is, as, as Malcolm Smith said in one of a, a tape that I listened to, that every circumstance is a container of Christ. It, it is a container of Jesus Christ that is hand-carried to you by the Holy Spirit. And it is through that circumstance that God is going to reveal something to you about your Savior that you would never see and never understand apart from that circumstance. 
Now, do you believe that He is all in all? you believe that? you believe you are complete in Him? You lack nothing? I mean, you, in Christ you have everything. He's all I need. He's all I need, the chorus says. But we do not understand all that He is. And so God uses circumstances as, as the hand that lit, through the Holy Spirit lifts the veil off Christ and reveals Him to you in a way that you would not see Him otherwise. When something is revealed, that something is already there. Now, you could come in and I could be standing here with, you know, uh, something under my handkerchief and you don't know what it is. That something is there all the time. But for me to reveal that to you, I can reach down and lift the handkerchief and what is there all the time is now revealed to your sight. That's the way Christ is. He is all in all right now. But you don't understand all that he is. So God leads you into a circumstance that you cannot handle so that when you come to the end of your resources and you say, God, you just do in me and through this whatever you choose to do, and God lovingly lifts the veil and you begin to see Christ in a way in which you've never seen him before. That is the exchange life. That is the abiding life. That is the victorious Christian life. And it is a, it is a relationship in which you grow as God deals with those pockets of flesh, those, that residual from your old actions and your old habits and your old coping mechanisms and brings you to the end of yourself, to the end of your resources, and then through that reveals His sufficiency, His majesty, His grace, His glory. Through your weakness, His strength is made perfect. I'm tired. And, I, 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 and, and when, when the last question is asked this evening, my brain will shut down. And hopefully we'll get up in time to teach the Sunday school class in the morning. But I want to take a few moments to, uh, to see if, if there are any questions that you have that would help to clarify any of the information that we've shared. These are truths in which I am growing and I am learning. And there are things that God is revealing to me and there are still areas of flesh God's dealing with in my life. And if I wasn't honest about that, my wife would, would straighten out the facts. But uh, are, are there any questions that we could maybe help you with in point of clarification? Uh, <laughs> the question was, how do you define flesh? Is that just the old tapes or the old patterns? Flesh, I think, is defined in this little book, Gems and Jargon, as a condition of the mind, will, and emotions being under the control of the power of indwelling sin or being under the control of one's own resources. In other words, it is you functioning out of your resources apart from abiding in Christ as life. Uh, flesh, I think that was one of the hardest things for me to understand because that is an abstract concept. It's not something we can say, you know, Ah, here's flesh. I'm going to reach in with these, these little forceps and I'm going to pull this, this dude out and I'm going to pitch it. You, know, you can't do that because it is a condition. And I think as a Christian, a non-Christian is in the flesh, functioning out of the only resource they have. A Christian is to walk in the Spirit. We are in the Spirit, but we can walk after the flesh. We can walk as though we were still dependent upon our own resources. And so it is, that, it is a condition of living out of our own resources with or without God's help. Basically, it's our position in Christ where we get that power. So in all of this, where do 
quiet time of scripture memory fit. Okay, those are all disciplines that are part of our spiritual growth and maturity. They are very, very important. And I don't mean to minimize those. They are not the basis of your relationship. They are not the, the basis of achieving righteousness or a right standing with God. They are disciplines that God uses to perfect the life of Christ within us. And so, you know, there are commands. One of the things we're often asked is... is uh, I think there are two things we're accused of, those who teach the exchange life. One is you are teaching passivity. You know, just kick back and don't do anything. And that's not true. When you look at this, Scripture says, I can do all things through Christ. That's not passive. Uh, If you look at Galatians 2.20, there's the old eye and the new eye. I am crucified with Christ, old eye. Nevertheless, I live. New I. Yet now it's not I, the old I, my resources, but now it's Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live. I am actively engaged in living life. What the exchange life does is it it frees me to obey the commands of God and to obey the direction of the Holy Spirit of God in my life. And I don't have to do that legalistically. You know, we were talking, sharing with some folks downstairs about about having devotions and quiet time, and how that that quiet time can become a point of pride, or it can become the thing that we are using to try to achieve a relationship with God, and that's not what a quiet time is. Some people will get a Bible reading schedule and they'll read five chapters a day. You know, uh, come rain, snow, or sleet, or whatever else. I mean, that, you got got to crank it out. Well, what if God speaks to you in the second verse you read and you meditate on that verse all day long? You know, you still have to crank out the five chapters. Or one day you may read 15 chapters. Just stay in the Word and just bathe in the Word. Uh, there are times that, uh, that you'll pray more than others. There are, and I think you need to be free to let the Holy Spirit of God deal with you. When I first began, I'll tell you what happens. Have you ever seen a pendulum, you know, swinging this way? Well, if a pendulum is stuck way over here, let's say if the pendulum is stuck way over on the side, where, where it was stuck for me was uh, being a ministryaholic. I mean, just doing all of these things constantly and, and work, 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 doing it for God. And it's stuck way up here. And when God freed me from that, have you ever seen a pendulum that was stuck when it breaks loose? Does it ever just go to the bottom and go, and stop there? No. And what happened with mine is I kind of went and went on this spiritual R&R where there was a month or two where I did zip. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go out soul winning one night. You know, I didn't try to crank anything out. I was just sitting there enjoying who I was in Christ because it's the first time in my life I understood that. And then the Holy Spirit of God began to bring that pendulum back into balance. And I think one of the most difficult things in our Christian lives is to maintain a balance. Some people may be on the end of passivity, and when they come to understand Christ as life, they suddenly are free to obey. They are free to be a witness and to disciple people. And so it depends, I think, on where we're coming from in the way that our flesh was operating and coping before we understood Christ as life. But all of those disciplines are a very important part of our Christian lives. And I think that I'm far from passive in my Christian life now. I'm probably as active as, as I was before, but I can enjoy what God's doing. And, uh, and when, when I have a quiet time, if, sometimes on, when I'm traveling and sometimes with my, my schedule getting hectic, 
there are days when I don't have a quiet time as far as sitting down with a notebook and writing down the things that God shows me from Scripture. My quiet time may be meditating on the things that I'm about to share and God's application of those things to my own life. And it may be an informal kind of a thing. Now, I could go back to my room feeling guilty and thinking, man, I've got to fake it and people are going to have to think that I'm doing all these things. But God may have placed some other priorities in my life. Uh, My priorities were really goofed up early in my ministry and in my marriage. And and I've I've hurt my wife. Uh, I I, I was kind of schooled to feel like if you take care of God's work, God will take care of your family. And when my second daughter was born in San Jose, California, up in Santa Clara, I was youth and music director at a church that was one of the ten fastest growing in the country. And I was, I was, I never take a day off. I was there seven in the morning till nine, ten o'clock at night, and I would just go, go, go. I went to the hospital. I was with her as she delivered that baby. I stayed for a few minutes, and I said, "Get some rest. I've got to go down to the church and take care of some things." After the Sunday morning service, I taught Sunday school. I led the choir, directed the music in the morning service. I went up to the hospital and said, "Hun, how you doing? Boy, the baby's pretty. Glad you're feeling better. You know, uh, let me sit around here." And I'd sit there and sort of drum the table with my fingers and say, "Got to run. Choir practices in a little bit, and then I have a, a training union hour, and then I've got to be in the morning in the evening service. I'll see you tomorrow." Now. That was a wrong priority. You know, that ministry was not the most important thing. My wife was the most important thing right then and the needs in her life. But I was too hung up as a ministryaholic to realize that. And my, my whole thinking and philosophy was wrong. So, I, you know, we need... In Christ now, I am free to say no to some things. In Christ, I am free to say, you know, I don't need to be down at the church. I need to be with my family right now. And when I was pastoring... I tried to start teaching my people that by example because I had set a wrong example for them. And I would go home in an evening and I would put the recorder on the telephone and people would call and the recorder would come on and I'd say, Hi, this is Larry. I can't come to the phone right now because I'm spending time with my wife and my children. But if you'll leave a message, I'll return your call as soon as possible. And there were people that got upset about that. But I was free in the Lord to establish priorities according to the leading of his spirit rather than to legalistically perform traditions or or, or rituals. But those things were still important. Prayer was important. Quiet time was important and still is. And I I think when when you look at verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is renewed with truth. And then you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and it says, Add to your faith virtue, add to virtue knowledge. Virtue really means strength of mind. It means an unwillingness to depart from that which is right. A commitment to truth. Well, you can have a commitment to truth, but then you have to have the knowledge, the next thing that he said to add to your faith, in order to know what you're going to stand for. So you've got to have those times, and you've got to have the Scripture memory. If you have a a commitment to truth without knowing the truth, I mean, you're going to stand for what's right. Uh, that can be bigotry. I mean, you're standing for something you don't even know about. But if you have the knowledge without the commitment to stand on that knowledge, then that's hypocrisy. So there's, there's a balance, and I think what Max said is true. Okay, the question was, how do you walk in the Spirit? I think it's a choice. It is an act of your will done by faith. Do you feel any different necessarily when you are yielding yourself to Christ as your life? 
I don't always feel different. And sometimes my feelings don't agree with my decision. You know, I think it is a conscious decision, but it does not always agree with our feelings. It is a choice that we make. Just saying, God, by faith today, your life is my life because you said it is. And I think one of the things that happens, uh, there's kind of a a diagram like this that you see in some of the material. And I'm not sure this may be Bill's. Kind of looks like a Christmas tree. And you enter into salvation. And you come into, you're born again, and you begin to grow in that life, and maybe you're dealing with assurance, and you're dealing with security, and you're dealing with those issues, and you become more and more secure in that salvation relationship. And then you come to a lordship commitment to Christ. He is your Lord, but you acknowledge Him as that. And you begin to to yield areas of your life to Him, and you begin to abide in that lordship and you begin to feel more and more secure in his lordship and understanding that and that being a part of your life. And then you may enter into identification with Christ and Christ being your life. And as you learn more and more to abide in that life and make that decision, it becomes more and more a habit of life. And I think we are growing in and abiding in these different disciplines and they are all to manifest the life of Christ within us. And so I think it is a decision. It's a choice that we make sometimes apart from our Apart from our emotions and our feelings. No. Now, I, I, I try to give that little preface to that setting the mind exercise. I really just want to try and teach you some things about how you can move your mind from one thing to another. You see, feelings are not negotiable. You can, you can change what you are thinking. You can choose to think about this or choose to think about that. But you can't say, I'm feeling depressed. I, I'm going to choose not to be depressed anymore. Feelings are not negotiable, so you're going to have to operate with the mind and choose to focus on, on what God says you're to focus on and deny the feelings if they're, if they're rejecting that and, and trust God to bring the feelings in line with what you're choosing to believe and focus on at that time. Oh, can they abuse or misuse the exchange life truths? Uh, you cannot abuse or misuse the exchange life. If you are abiding in Christ as life, it's hard to abuse or misuse uh, Christ manifesting himself through you. I, certainly, as with any other truth, it can be and is abused and misused. And uh, I think there are deceptions, and I, I'm not going to take time to go into all of those, but the tape albums downstairs in the series by Leela Faber on Victory Series 2, there's a tape in there called Spiritual Deceptions. And if you want to purchase that tape, you can pull it out of the tape album, and those are $5. That would be an excellent follow-up to the conference because it talks about some of the rabbit trails that we may run down when we don't fully understand what this, this exchange life is really all about. Some of the deceptions that Lee has fallen into, some of them that I've fallen into. And I think that would be a good tape. Uh, did you have any particular abuses in mind? or? All right. There are things in your past. We take someone's history... And so we tell them it's sometimes a painful time. The question was, is this an excuse for not dealing with the past? No. I mean, your past is part of what's happened to you. You can't deny that. I think it is helpful to understand how past experiences made you feel and how, they, you, know, how you learned to cope in light of those past experiences, how you, how you reacted to those and why your, your method of dealing with them is not really what God had, had provided for you. Now, that's helpful. But 
a psychotherapist would dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and try to bring up every memory and every occurrence. And part of the problem with that is they throw all this garbage out on the table and you go into heavy-duty depression because of all the junk because there's no way to deal with that. I think you can trust the Holy Spirit of God to bubble up from your subconscious mind those things that He wants to deal with. Perhaps forgiveness issues with people uh, to whom you had some bitterness or some anger in the past. As He brings things to mind, you can deal with those things. I don't think that you have to wait until He brings back every memory that has been buried or blocked in the past in order to walk in victory in the exchange life. So we're not denying those traumas, we're not denying the damage that they have done, but we are saying those are in the past. And now we're not to look back, but we're to go forward realizing our new identity and the basis of our victory in Christ. But it's helpful to understand those, and that's why we go through the history, to help people understand the coping patterns that they've developed after the flesh to try and make life work. And to, Because in, in order to give something up to God, we've got to understand what we're giving up. I don't think you have to grunt and groan and strain. I think you can trust the Holy Spirit to bring those things to the surface as He wants to deal with them. How would you uh, compare setting the mind on truth with just trying to escape and, because you don't want to deal with what's going on now? Uh, you're not escaping. I mean, you are setting your mind on Christ. Paul was, not, I mean, Paul was in prison and dealing with prison while he was setting his mind on things above. But I think you're setting your mind on your victory in Christ, your position in Christ, in the midst of dealing. You know, it's not an either-or thing. It's a matter of as you deal with this crisis. If uh, I deal with, with women who's, uh, who are going through divorces or men who are going through divorces, and I've had both recently where one mate or the other will leave and say, that's it, I'm divorcing. Uh, they are having to deal with the legal issues, they are having to deal with the emotional issues, and they come in and talk out their feelings and those kinds of things. But at the same time, they still are victorious in Christ because in Him, they are sufficient. And they, they may not be able to look to that mate to meet the needs. So it's not escaping from reality, but it's just setting your mind on spiritual reality as you deal with physical reality. Thank you for being here. I have really enjoyed it. This is the first time I've tried to do all that material in a 24-hour period. And so you probably are experiencing overload. You have taken a drink out of a fire hose. But I want you to know that at any time you may feel free to tap the fount of all knowledge who has, who has graduated from an internship. And so I bounce the ideas off Scott. and. And hopefully we'll be able to come back and share with you again at some future time. God bless you. Thank you for being here. In the series by Leela Faber, on Victory Series 2, there's a tape in there called Spiritual Deceptions. And if you want to purchase that tape, you can pull it out of the tape album, and those are $5. That would be an excellent follow-up to the conference because it talks about some of the rabbit trails that we may run down when we don't fully understand what this, this exchange life is really all about. Some of the deceptions that Lee has fallen into, some of them that I've fallen into. And I think that would be a good tape. Uh, did you have any particular abuses in mind? or? <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes, sometimes people... Uh, or one of the criticisms I've heard is 
that people use the exchange line to design and not deal with things. You know, so it's a way, well, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't want to think about what's happening to me. And so I'm just going to do this. And okay. Set my mind and I'm not going to deal with that stuff. All right. There are things in your past. We take someone's history. And so we tell them it's sometimes a painful time. The question was, is this an excuse for not dealing with the past? No. I mean, your past is part of what's happened to you. You can't deny that. I think it is helpful to understand how past experiences made you feel and how, they, you, know, how you learned to cope in light of those past experiences, how you, how you reacted to those. And why your, your method of dealing with them is not really what God had, had provided for you. Now, that's helpful. But a psychotherapist would dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and try to bring up every memory and every occurrence. And part of the problem with that is they throw all this garbage out on the table and you go into heavy-duty depression because of all the junk because there's no way to deal with that. I think you can trust the Holy Spirit of God to bubble up from your subconscious mind those things that he wants to deal with. Perhaps forgiveness issues with people uh, to whom you had some bitterness or some anger in the past. As he brings things to mind, you can deal with those things. I don't think that you have to wait until he brings back every memory that has been buried or blocked in the past in order to walk in victory in the exchange life. So we're not denying those traumas, we're not denying the damage that they have done, but we are saying those are in the past. And now we're not to look back, but we're to go forward realizing our new identity and the basis of our victory in Christ.